Hello, faithful listeners. This is Pastor John Cloudwater from Faith Lutheran Church here in Forest Lake, and we are so glad that you are listening online to our online podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for participating in worship with us as we look forward to the week ahead. A reading from Isaiah. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. You have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The palace of aliens is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge to the needy, in their distress, a shelter from the rainstorm and a shade from the heat. When the blast of the ruthless was like a winter storm, rainstorm, the noise of aliens like heat in a dry place, you subdued the heat with the shade of clouds. The song of the ruthless was stilled. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained and clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord. Gospel reading from the 22nd chapter of Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king, when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. He said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The Gospel of the Lord. 
You may be seated. Grace and peace to you, my friends in Christ. In a week filled with terror in the Holy Land, the readings this Sunday don't immediately calm our hearts, do they? They end with weeping and gnashing of teeth and what feels like a limit to who God chooses. Perhaps we want Jesus to speak words of love to everybody, but that's not necessarily what he came to earth to do. Jesus boldly calls out behaviors when they're not aligned with the values that we declare. So he shares another parable with us today. Yep, another parable. What do we do with this? What do we do with this parable about the kingdom of God, which is directly calling us out of behaviors that aren't taking care of our neighbors? Maybe we think that Jesus isn't political. I've heard that before. Well, Jesus doesn't have any political affiliation. And while that may be true that he wouldn't align with a political party, he certainly talks a lot about politics, and he does that through parables. Next week, we'll hear him use the language of paying taxes to Caesar. He's talking today about a king and maybe showing us our idolatry to politicians and leaders. The setting of the parable then is this wedding feast, not for the king, but for the king's son. And this would have been something that would have lasted a whole week in this Jewish community. You didn't have to be there first, and you didn't have to stay there the whole week. But when you came to that wedding feast, you had to follow certain customs. First was the invitation. Being invited by a king is not a simple RSVP in the mail and maybe hoping that your kid's got a sporting event so you can't go to the wedding, right? You know, when the king expects you to show up, you show up. Uh, Richard Bachman notices how significant it is that the host is a king. He says, to refuse the invitation is tantamount to rebellion, In refusing it, the invitees are deliberately treating the king's authority with contempt. They know full well that their behavior will be understood as insurrection, and this is what they intend. And those who kill the king's messengers only make this intention known more emphatically. You know, who's his audience? Who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to people who are threatened by him, these religious leaders and Pharisees. When he's talking, he's comparing them to the guests who have ignored the invitation from the king. The king, God, has invited you to this, and I'm here, the son, Jesus. This is the feast that I want you to be at. The rest of the town then gets invited. And Jesus, who has just walked into town on a donkey, now has all of these people clamoring to see him. And here we go. We start seeing people show up at this wedding feast. But then we have a unique little part of the story about this wedding robe, right? The, the one guest who doesn't have his wedding robe. How did they let you in without your wedding robe? And this is the thing that the king gets really angry about. We're like, seriously, why would he be so mad about how this guy's dressed? Well, the wedding robe was something that the king would have provided to all of the guests. If you didn't have your own robes, I mean, just picture what the royal weddings have looked like in the past, right? Everyone gets all done up and they have those really funny looking hats, right? Like, this is exactly what is happening here. Everyone's showing up and the wedding robe is provided if you don't have one. The king is mad that someone has showed up at this wedding feast but ignored the wedding robe that was offered to him to be able to come and join the celebration. 
I was listening to the Sermon Brainwave podcast that Luther Seminary puts together, and Joy J. Moore is one of the professors at the seminary, and she shared in the podcast this week about a Methodist pastor that she remembered when she was, uh, when she was kind of a young pastor just growing up in, and just learning about the church. She told me, uh, she told the, the podcast about this Methodist pastor who noticed a woman who kept coming to the church to, the, to use the food shelf. Week after week, she would come. And so he'd formed a bond with this woman, and he kept inviting her to come to church. And he's like, hey, you should really come to church with your kids sometime. You are welcome here. And each time, he would look, and there she wasn't there. She didn't come. And so the Methodist pastor one day asked her, you know, why don't you come when I keep inviting you? And her response was that her clothes were so worn out that she didn't feel like she would feel right coming to church. She'd be too self-conscious about what she was wearing. And I gave the pastor an idea. The next time she came to the, sh- to the food shelf, he had a bag for her, and it was filled with clothes for her and for her kids. And he handed it to her, and he said, hope to see you. So on Sunday, he looked around, and sure enough, she still wasn't there. Puzzled, when she came back the next week, he looked at her, and he said, what happened? I was so excited to see you come to church. And so when he asked her this question, he said, we gave you these new clothes, but you still didn't come. Is is everything all right? The woman looked at him and said, why, yes, pastor, thank you. But when I saw just how nice those clothes were, we went over to the Presbyterian church. (laughs) You know, the joke hits home because we can relate to that. We can relate to how we're dressed and how we appear and, and how what we're wearing matters. And this parable isn't about clothes. It's about what we wear with our faith. What do people see when we demonstrate who we are as a Christian? Theologian Robert Smith suggests, this is a sharp warning to this new community. It's not sufficient to hold membership and to sit at the tables as invited guests to have said yes instead of no. What's being promoted here is doing the Father's will and bearing fruit and being properly garbed. Perhaps we feel frustrated that just being part of the church doesn't translate to more people fighting for justice or bringing an end to oppression. I read a commentary about this passage before COVID, and it was by uh, Professor Caroline Lewis. And I, I looked back on what she had written about five years ago, and this really struck me as something that, that's timely now. She said, is the decline of the mainline church because we've been satisfied with just getting people in the pews? And once we get them there, we are so happy they showed up that we've forgotten that accountability comes with discipleship? She said, I wonder if people aren't coming to church because our preaching perpetuates a passive faith. And I wonder if a Christianity has lost its voice in the public sphere because we've caved to the idolatry of maintaining the status quo. I'm struck by this quote because it hits me a little differently now than it did five years ago. We tend to be worriers. I I hear worry in people's voice when I talk about the church, when I talk with my peers, when we talk about the church in society. We worry about what's going to happen. We worry about numbers. We worry about, are we going to have enough volunteers? We worry about things that are completely out of our control, and we've forgotten to put that in God's hands. And I think about what if we put all that energy that we had into worrying, a passive 
emotion into an active energy? What if we became accountability partners for each other? I see that shift. I see how that's working here at Faith. I see the engagement that we have when we gather at 10.30 and we have brood theology conversations. I'm excited by the potential that we have as we gather together and we bring our voices together and we rise above the status quo. You know, in the Bible, we often get a sense of what's happening in the moment for whatever Jesus is preaching and teaching about. But it's, it's kind of interesting to think about what happens in the history after these events happen. What happened after Jesus' death and resurrection to the beginnings of that church? You know, there's a few clues that are given to us by the gospel writers. Matthew, a few verses after this parable today, has Jesus strolling out of the temple. And he predicts the destruction of the temple. This place that they hold so dear will be gone. And it really does happen. The allegiance to the Roman Empire only led to further discontent. The people would rise up and revolt. All of the religious turmoil and the excessive taxation led to more fighting. Titus and his Roman army would come along, and they arrived in Jerusalem about three days before the Passover, which meant there was a large gathering of people there. And all of those who were gathered in Jerusalem didn't get along all that well. Think about that. There's a lot of people in a very small space. They had a lot of religious infighting without a unified front. And then this imposing military front strikes and a battle ensues. They were able to withstand the Romans for a little while. They continued to lean on their strength and their defenses. But the battle wasn't won until a few legionnaires, a few who kind of went rogue without orders, started a fire in the temple, and then they plundered all of the riches from the temple. And so this temple, now destroyed and all of the forces depleted, finally conquered Jerusalem. Titus defeats them for the Roman Empire. As we sit here today and we think of how history continues to repeat itself over and over again, to this day, these holy grounds continue to burn over arguments that are complicated for us to understand and clearly hard for us to agree upon. Yet I wonder if we struggle to make sense of what's happening over there because we see how we struggle even here in our own backyard. We fight over religious matters. We fight over political matters. We don't get along on things that are just basic ways to take care of each other. We fight so much that, as Caroline Lewis points out, many in our nation have opted out of religion a religious alignment altogether. Yet this is where I think we need to turn to our faith the most. Because through Christ, I know that Christ taught us how to love. How to love our neighbors, how to love our friends, how to love our family, how to love even our enemies. And Jesus isn't predicting a world without conflict. Jesus isn't saying, hey, I'm here, guys, it's good, nobody's ever going to fight again. No, he's providing us a way to respond to those who do hurt us. And so it's not a way to arm ourselves with superiority to say that our way is always right. And so as Hamas attacked last weekend, I noticed how people reacted. A lot of opinions were shared. Some were called out for being too opinionated. 
some for not being opinionated, opinionated enough. But it seemed like everybody had an opinion about everybody's opinion being wrong. And I don't know how this tragedy is going to play itself out. But I pray for peace. When the news broke, I felt helpless. So I thought about what could I do. I reached out to two people that I knew were definitely affected by what happened. I reached out to two of my rabbi friends. Two of the guys I met this summer at Fort Jackson. And I asked them how they're doing. And clearly they were struggling with what was happening, but also what was about to happen. And one of them told me about a struggle that was directly affecting his community. Joel serves in New York. And he directly asked me to pray for a member of his synagogue, Omer. He was captured by Hamas and taken to Gaza. He's 21 years old. They have video proof that shows him being captured as he was on guard the night of the attack. His family's praying that he's still alive. They're praying that Hamas would show justice and not stoop to the awful things that have been happening, that they would handle him with humanitarian care. I told Joel that I was praying for him, and I told him that we were praying for his community. Because I believe that prayer, especially in times of division and pain, is one of the most essential things that we can do in our faith. You see, the wedding feast, as much as we want to make it about judgment, I think it's about accountability. We're here. How are we doing? How's your prayer life? How are you doing with forgiving others? How about forgiving yourself? How do you speak of others when they're not in the room? What are each of us doing to lift up and care for the people that God has put into our lives and the world that God has made? Folks, we are already at the feast. Let's be dressed for the part. Amen. Amen.